So hello and welcome to another episode of Interviews with Experts. Is it likely that we may be sampling the wrong bees in our search for varroa destructor mites? Well, today my special guest is Dr. Zachary Lamas. Dr. Lamas is a postdoctoral researcher in the University of Maryland's Entomology Department in College Park, Maryland. Let's learn more about mites and why Dr. Lamas thinks that we should be taking a closer look at our young drones inside our hives. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. Anyways, Fred, thanks, thanks for having me here. So my name is Zach Lamas. I'm a O-RISE fellow at the USDA-R's in Beltsville, Maryland. I work in the Jay Evans lab, um, and I largely study varroa behavior. When I identify a new behavior of varroa, we then ask, how does that behavior drive viral transmission? Um, there's a lot of incidental um, basic biology work that we can we can kind of derive out of the work I do. And there's also some um, applied work that we can get out of the work I do. And you'll hear me as I talk today, kind of talk about both of those things. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I want to thank you, first of all, for joining me today. This is as a podcast. So for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, it's also available just to listen so you don't wreck your car. And uh, I'm very happy that uh, Dr. Lamas is here because... He's done a lot of great things uh, in the lab, and he works at the Beltsville Lab. Is that where you're at now in Maryland? Yeah, I'm in my office right there. Um, okay. Actually, caught me at a really good time because we had a graft queens today, and I have to bake off some glassware for a project tomorrow. So uh, you get me in the office of beige, as I call it. Okay. So you have to bake off some glassware. What's that? Yeah, well, um, as we'll probably talk about um, kind of during the segment, um, but we're really interested in characteristics of drones and why adult drones and why mites are attracted to them. And so one of the things is, do they have distinctive cuticular hydrocarbons that are unique amongst certain age groups of uh, drones uh, compared to workers or, or other bees in the hive? And um, so what I'm doing is I uh, wash some glass vials, hexane, rinsed them, and now I'm baking them off so that they don't have any contaminants, any smells in them at all. Tomorrow, what I'll do is I'll actually be running an experiment to see why are mites really attracted to certain drones versus others. And um, we'll uh, do these crude extracts in hexane and then take those samples, bring them over to the mass spec lab at University of Maryland and see is there a distinctive quality from some of these adult drones versus others. And that's just what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, my day kind of got pushed later and later and later. And uh, I knew I wanted to start right away tomorrow because I have a colony with tons of uh, drones and tons of mites. So kind of don't want to miss good opportunities once we have them. Now, when you say what's key about tomorrow, does it have anything to do with weather or is this lab related? Are we in field testing? Uh, Our spring is starting here. And so we have plenty of samples to to work with. Um, I just know that I have a colony that has lots of drones that have been emerging. And Mm -hmm. it also has a pretty high infestation of Varroa destructor. Mm -hmm. And so I can go in there tomorrow and get plenty of samples that I want. Um, and it happens to be tomorrow's my most free day and the weather's good. So okay. like I had to graph today, but I'm um, making colonies with our apiary manager Thursday and Friday, and I'm off-site sampling on Wednesday. So tomorrow just kind of, we're going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So how many colonies are in the site that you're working with? I think we usually manage around 250 colonies, but there's six labs here. So those are divided up amongst uh, those labs. And then we usually have visiting scientists um, undergraduate and graduate researchers from nearby universities. So uh, some of them are general use, some of them are um, in year-long projects in specific labs. 
Mm-hmm. Now, are the queens that these drones come from, are there a specific genetic line that we would know about or no? No, nope. we're starting to do that here. Um, we want to buy in fewer and fewer packages and queens um, at our facility. Um, so Francisco is our apiary manager um, here. Him and I are teaming up this year and I'll be producing queens for him so he can do plenty of splits. And hopefully we'll get into something later, but we're really not talking about like a formal queen rearing um, program or queen breeding program. Uh, for my own projects, I produce all of the the queens uh, for my own research. Um, I used to be um, a queen breeder and I worked for, for Michael Palmer up north. So when I came down to do my PhD and then work in, at the USDA, I kind of brought a wealth of, of uh, knowledge and background experience producing queens. And um, I love it because like when I run an experiment, I'll run it with all sister queens, but they're just open mated carnivores to answer it in short. Okay. And uh, I heard a rumor about you from my friends at the PM Forum Partnership that uh, you actually were one of the first to rear a queen completely under laboratory conditions. Is that right? It's it's pretty close to being right. Um, so we're uh, we figured out a way that we can produce uh, queens in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. We do need about a twelve hour start out in the field first, um, and. Um, but yeah, we call them nano colonies and we can actually get about 100 bees to rear a queen in the lab or we can get 100 bees to support um, a mated queen and rear brood in the lab. Um, and so as far as we know, we have the one closed system where we can do this in the laboratory. And um, for producing the queens, we could actually do it on completely artificial substances. So instead of needing real pollen, we can use pollen substitute. Instead of needing wax, we can use the paraffin comb produced by a better bee. Um, and then we can just use sugar water. Um, we actually are just getting ready to submit that as a as a manuscript, but um, we have a lot of interest from collaborators who either have transgenic material that they want to study, but there's no really great way for them to study that material. It's unethical to release it into the wild. Mm. And um, other than in vitro brood rearing, which is very synthetic, there's there's really no way to to uh, test some of these pathogens or transgenic material and get a full circulation from, you know, adult bees to, to brood. But we can do that in the lab right now. And we have. So, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. I like that term nano colony. And you arrived at 100 bees, you say. How did you end up at 100? Was that less than that wouldn't work out or more was unnecessary? How did that go? It was about 100, um, about 130 worked really great. And it's and it's the average number I get when I use a, a third cup scoop. Um, and so we just kind of went with that. Um, I was starting, okay, so for a little background for this project, we just published um, a paper that um, mites actively move from one adult bee to another to another. And when I uh, first did this work, I was doing it in um, plastic cups. We call these cage trials. And um, essentially, if you have a ventilated plastic cup in an incubator in the laboratory, we'll put adult bees in there. And, um, you know, you can do any type of study you, you want. You can do a nutritional study, pesticide study. In my case, I was studying varroa behavior. But the arena, that plastic cup, is just so artificial. So we're seeing these mites engage in these behaviors. Um, but we can't necessarily take that and, and say this is exactly what's happening in the field. Because, you know, our laboratory conditions are just so synthetic. Right. Um, but I can't make a colony so small in the field that I can actually follow an individual mite. It's just impossible. So I had this problem where I wanted to study something. And the 
So I decided, well, if I make a colony that's approximately 100 bees, I would be able to track an individual mite in the laboratory, but in real colony conditions. And so this whole nano colony project actually arose out of another problem that I had, which is I need to study varroa behavior. Um, I can't do it in a way that I want to do. And uh, me and a roommate actually worked on it for about six months. And, um, uh, and we started in, I want to say, October. And then by April, we had bees rearing full rounds of, uh, actually, it was before April, we had uh, bees in our uh, incubator we've had in our living room. Um, that And the incubator was actually a refrigerator that we modified into a, an incubator. And uh, we were able to get a full cycle of brood uh, right in there. And so that was the start of that project. But it just came out of necessity. About that incubator, what is the temperature you're operating at? Just keep it around, uh, I think it's 33, 34 uh, degrees Celsius, and that works That works great. Um, I tend to keep it a little bit on the colder side um, because our HVAC here will kind of get a little wonky sometimes, and then your incubators can heat up if they don't have a natural uh, cooling plate inside of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, anywhere really 29 Celsius to, to 33 is going to be really fine. And what about the humidity levels? Yeah, for the nano colonies, we actually keep it lower than a lot of other published papers will. Like they'll keep it around 60% um, mm -hmm. humidity. Um, but um, if the bees get wet at all in those nano colonies, then they're they're just going to die. They're useless to us. And we have uh, several feeders in there. Plus the brood itself will produce a bit of moisture. So um, I'll actually keep it close to 30% relative humidity. And that works out great for the nano colonies. Um, and that was one of the biggest problems that we had as my roommate and I were and the roommate's name is Sir, uh, Sir Samaz. He's now in Turkey and he runs a behavior lab there. Um, you know, he noticed actually pretty quickly, he's like, these bees are getting wet. That's that's probably a bigger deal than we're giving them, you know, giving this issue credit for. And all we did was actually created a ventilated top and bottom. It took care of the issue and uh, we were able to move ahead with the project. Hmm. Now in the incubator, do you monitor anything else like oxygen levels or is the rest just kind of left to the bees? Whatever happens, happens. Um, that's a really good question. So this project has always been the redheaded stepchild of my PhD. And so I just finished my PhD last, actually it's a year to date, last April. And um, this project was never funded um, through, I had a, a Pam Costco fellowship that funded my PhD. Um, and um, the only funding that we had for this project was actually bee club supporting it. So the New Hampshire beekeepers um, the Painted Box Fund down in Virginia, and then the Montgomery County beekeepers all collectively put about 8,000 together, and it allowed us to get some undergrads and send some samples off to the NC State Lab um, with uh, Dr. Tarpey to do some analysis on our queens. And um, But it was always the redheaded stepchild in my research because I'm primarily studying viral transmission and viral behavior, and we just had this cool project on the side. So there's so much we wanted to do with it. Mm -hmm. And we could never actually get to doing uh, those projects. Um, when we did, we just had the worst luck. So um, a couple colleagues and I, Eugene Riabov, made this genetically modified virus. And the virus is really cool. It's deformed wing virus, but it has two inserts um, into its genome. And what it allows you to do is track that DWV compared to any other DWV that might be present in your samples. So it's a really great tool um to do transmission work and we reared queens in the laboratory um artificially inseminated them and some of them were exposed to this modified virus and some of them weren't um and we both had contamination and a freezer went down when we redid 
the experiment, the freezer went down. Um, and we just, and when I say the freezer went down, we have all of these samples that are maintained in a negative 80 freezer. Mm-hmm. And um, once those samples warm up, the RNA that we're really interested in, honeybee viruses are RNA viruses, they degrade super quickly. So we, when a freezer warms up and you don't catch it right away, you essentially lose these experiments. And so we, we asked some cool questions, which is if adult bees cannibalize um, infectious pupae, mm-hmm. does the queen become infected? Does the brood food become infected? Mm-hmm. Do the, does the next generation of, of uh, worker bees become infected? And we ran it twice and lost the freezer twice. And so there's only so much, you know, you know, so we did ask some really cool things. What do you want to monitor? And, and we just got, you know, bad beats on both times. And sometimes mm-hmm. your run, your luck just runs poorly. Um, and so where we are on that project right now is um, we can get them to actually be functional uh, queen rearing colonies in flat Petri dishes mm-hmm. with a raspberry Pi, we can video record them. And so um, if we can either get some funding so we can, you know, get another student on this project, or if I can free up some time, we want to do the automated tracking um, with these really small units. Are you familiar with the Gene Robinson's lab and their automated tracking um, projects that they do? No. So <laughs> they have a really cool setup where they take, uh, I think it's six to 9,000 bees and they mm-hmm. super glue little QR oh, codes. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Okay. Well, we want to read, well, that's that's like a twenty or $30,000 camera and you're talking a lot of people, you know, just gluing on thousands of tags. So you, you get one, an experiment's really expensive. Mm-hmm. And, but it's really cool because you're doing it on a functional colony. Well, we're like, can we get, our units cost about $120. So theoretically any lab can afford this. Mm-hmm. Um, but can we get this um, operating inside of a Petri dish? And one thing you can do is you could actually run tons of replicates because they're inexpensive and easy to set up. Um, but also you can actually have a bunch of replicates with very little variability in between each replicate. So when we do these nano colonies, uh, two, uh, two frames of brood can make 15 of these nano colonies. Uh, and, but there's no real variation between the worker bees from one nano colony to another. But if I was to do any of this work in another um, setup or even in the field, I have lots of variability between my colonies. And so one of the things we're hoping for is, you know, we can do this behavior work and either study pathogens or pesticide exposure onto these adult bees. And then you can ask a bunch of different questions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered that clearly, but. That's really interesting stuff all across the board. And I know that there's some people listening and watching and going, what are we talking about? So <laughs> because uh, a lot of the people that view my channel are backyard beekeepers and they're looking for practical applications, practical knowledge that would help them with their beekeeping. And uh, so one of the reasons that I reached out to you is because of your observations and studies involving um, the fact that we don't count Varroa striker mites on the drones themselves and uh, that we normally, of course, count the nurse bee mites because they're on brood and it's open brood and everything else. So it was very kind of exciting to hear somebody discuss um, counting mites on drones and uh, specifically that the mites were attracted to emerged drones that were two to three days old. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. And so what led you down that path? In other words, why were we following the mites to see what bees they were attaching themselves to in the first place? Yeah. So that's a good question because this experiment was was kind of an accident. Um, it started in March 2020. And, uh, you know, as you remember, 
you know, we went into to shut down because of the pandemic. And um, I had recently received the Pam Costco Fellowship and I had proposed nothing but laboratory experiments. Um, my first two years of my PhD, I was doing field, field work and I really wanted to get away from doing field work, work in the laboratory so I could become a molecular biologist. And I knew if I didn't separate myself from doing field work, um, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And so thankfully, because of the Pam Costco Fellowship, um, you know, once I got that funding, I uh, was able to, to propose a bunch of molecular experiments. And now all of a sudden 2020 comes around and every experiment I had proposed for my PhD wasn't possible because the labs were shut down. And, and so I had to pivot really quickly and everyone had to pivot quickly, you know, in our, in our lives. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, I was leasing a house in College Park, Maryland. And on, in my lease, I was allowed to have beehives in my backyard. And um, I was dating someone in Canada. You know, I couldn't go up and see her. She wasn't willing to come on down here. I couldn't go and see my family. Couldn't see my friends safely. And I couldn't go to the lab to just do my experiments because they were shut down. So I went out right. to my back. So I went out to my backyard with a handful of queen marking pens. And I said, if the labs don't open up, what can I do with just these pens that's going to give me meaning and purpose every day? And, and that was the first question I had asked myself. And I had just read some soft science article that uh, parasites prefer males. And, it, and that was specifically to, to mammals. But I thought it was kind of interesting. And I said, you know, I don't think I recall a single experiment that looked for host preference on adult drones. Mm -hmm. We know it's well established that they prefer drone brood over worker brood mm -hmm. and up to 50 times as, as, as much. Um, but I didn't recall any experiment that had looked at adult drones. And when I quickly went through the literature, I noticed in all of the experimental designs um, in material methods, they just excluded drones. They mm -hmm. looked at um, newly emerged workers, nurse bees and forager bees. So all within that worker bee cohort, just excluding drones. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pretty easy way to start is went out to the backyard and uh, as drones were emerging, I would look at them. And if they had a mite on them, I would give them two colors. And if they had no mites on them when they emerged, I would mark them just a single color. And I did the same thing for worker bees. Um, and then essentially, I would just go back inside and watch Tiger Kings. Um, the next I, day, yeah, Tiger yes. Kings. <laughs> I oh, mean, that's man. what got everyone through uh, March and April, right? And, yeah, I guess uh, so. And then I went back out the next day and I would mark bees again, but I would recheck everyone I had marked the previous day. And what I quickly realized uh, was that there were far more mites on the adult drones than there were on the workers. Mm -hmm. And these drones that I had marked with just a single color were gaining mites. Mites were moving on to them within mm -hmm. that 24 hour period. Mm -hmm. And not just like one or two mites, but sometimes up to six or seven. It was pretty infested. Yeah. And yeah, so after yeah. three days of doing this, I realized, oh, we have a finding here. And then the project just grew and grew from there. Mm -hmm. And that was the mind-blowing thing for me is that, as you said, when the drone is coming out, when it's emerging, it may not even have a mite on it. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, so what is, we always thought that the mites, you know, they're using their pupa stage to reproduce. And then as soon as that drone emerges, we just assumed the mites scoot out of there and all the female mites run over and they head for the nurse bees because they're the ones that have all the tasty resources. And uh, and I think 
because drones are hard to grab. I mean, they're zipping out of there. They're not flying at a day old. So they're kind of in the hive for the first. When do they leave the hive? Three days? We've had drones as early as two days. Okay. Uh, be found outside of the, the colony and as young as three days um, in other colonies within our apiary. So bees can actually um, begin uh, flying pretty quickly and end up in other colonies uh, at a really young age. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the complications in our experiments. Yeah. And that's an eye opener because it also lets us know on a very practical level that these drones are actually spreading the mites around. Uh, when we thought they were just staying in the hive and basically hanging with nurse bees who don't leave the hive. So that seemed like a pretty safe uh, sequestering situation for those varrodestructor mites. And that's why it's really exciting to know that these drones are actually mite magnets. Yeah, and um, just to, to fill in a comment there, um, so we didn't end up showing that drones moving from an infested colony to a non-infested colony mm -hmm. uh, is a is a means for mite immigration, but it makes mm -hmm. it makes sense, and our data is showing that drones that are likely to leave this uh, home colony and end up in a in a guest colony um, mm -hmm. are likely to have a mite on them. Um, so they could be shedding mites into neighboring colonies at really low uh, rates. And there's already established research like Delaplane and Sealy showing that just spreading colonies out uh, several meters can increase their survivorship. And one reason, one explanation now for that could be is they're just getting, they're not receiving emigration of mites during uh, the season. Um, sure. So now if we, if we say that the drone is appetizing for whatever reason, whatever pheromone it's putting off as a young drone, um, at what point does it no longer become appealing to the Varroa destructor mite? Yeah, so it's a little bit more complicated of a question, um, even though it's, it sounds like a simple question. Uh, we didn't study the population dynamics um, in, these, in these studies, so we don't know if the um, distribution of Varroa across different ages of drones could shift if you simply increase the infestation level. Uh, we'd have to have a lot of replicates and this is really time consuming work. Mm -hmm. um, but what we find is mites are very interested in drone brood. So they're gonna be on these emerging drones. Mm -hmm. After that, they love two and three day old drones. Um, then you see a sharp decrease in their interest in adult drones. So you don't find very many on four day, five day, et cetera, old drones. And you'll see some of them on on young drone or older drones, but not very many. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it just plummets right off. The interesting thing to us is they also, once drones seasonally disappear, they shift on to those two and three day old worker bees. Right. Uh, so that was a really similar pattern that we saw and we thought was pretty interesting. Right. And that's how we came up with that speculation that at the end of the year, when people all of a sudden, because all we're counting are the nurse bees, of course, and then there's this drone, uh, not drone, but varroa mite rapid increase, which may coincide with uh, the absence of the drones for them to feed on. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, that is. And um, uh, so, yeah, let's let's walk back just a second and describe, you know, what is an alcohol wash and, and what was it designed for? The mm -hmm. alcohol wash was originally designed to collect nurse bees because early work in Varroa host preference was that mites prefer nurse bees. Hmm. And so what frame do we ask beekeepers to grab? We ask them to go into the center of the brood nest and find a mixed frame that has open larva and capped 
uh, brood. Why? Because nurse bees are going to be there attending that brood, mm. and you're most likely to capture a mite. This is a test that's been designed to um, to sample, to collect nurse bees. By default, you're excluding drones. Mm-hmm. And so when you're sampling early in the season and mites are by proportion heavily on those drones versus um, worker bees, especially nurse bees, um, you're selecting against where the mites should be. Um, in our work, whether it was Maryland or Vermont, in August, um, we have that seasonal dearth where we have the end of the main flow. Colonies produce far fewer drones. And all of a sudden we see this heavy shift onto worker bees and simultaneously we see these spikes um, in alcohol washes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so parsimony would say, you know, this shift is can be attributed to the sampling method now actually sampling for where mites are. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it looks like is just these unexplainable jumps in infestation levels in some colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, now, while saying that, you likely do have some crashing colonies at that time of the year. And you could also simultaneously be getting some emigration from other colonies. That's totally a possibility. And your method for getting the drones that you were doing the mite counts on, you're just grabbing them off the frame? So we did several different experiments. And that one we did, we just grabbed them right off the frame. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to work for Mike Palmer up at French Hill Aperies in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And then Troy Hall is a a good and close friend. And uh, I approached both of them. Um, about doing a season-long project using their colonies. And both of them agreed to it, and and we were super thankful for it. Um, And the reason we approached both of them is um, they have plenty of apiaries. Both of those beekeepers keep their colonies in similar orientations, so two deeps and a medium for their their brood nest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And neither of them heavily split their colonies during the year, Um, and they're not migratory. So it was like really these perfect operations for us to, to run this this uh, trial. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to um, go in and hand pick up drones at random from random colonies, but using the same colonies from May through August mm-hmm. and see, hey, this pattern that we saw in this experiment in Maryland, do we see the same pattern when we select colonies at random and pick drones up at random? And, and we did see that. Mm-hmm. So what did you think about my idea of putting a queen excluder cage around a drone frame uh, and of course allow the queen to lay up that drone frame and then put the cage around, remove the queen and then let them emerge and you control the drones that way so you can do counts. Did that seem like a helpful way to do it? Um, So I I actually missed that part. So the reason you're putting that queen excluder in there is you're physically isolating all of the drones into one area of the colony, is that correct? Yeah, to put them in one of these. Okay. So I figured if you took, because this is a drone frame in there, if we really Mm -hmm. wanted to retain the drones and keep them from leaving uh, the hive and -hmm. then allow the queen to continue her production elsewhere, uh, then you would have all of the emerging drones. And if she laid them up in a a knowable time frame, then you would also know the age of the drones that were in here. And then you could knock them out with CO2 or something is what I thought, because you also made a comment at the end of your, near the end of your presentation that by allowing the drone frame or drones themselves to kind of draw the varroa destructor mites in, we could actually use it as part of our integrated pest management system, 
chemical free and remove those drones, even more drones by waiting until they emerge and then attract the phoretic mites or dispersal phase mites uh, onto their bodies before removal. Um, yeah, I think someone brought that up as a comment. So, so let me ask, I haven't used one of those those cages yet. Are they are they used to isolate queens for graphing? Is that what those uh, are for? It, well, what I was using them for, and these are brand new. That's why I just got it. And, okay. and it kind of came at the exact same time within days of uh, seeing your presentation. I had this mm -hmm. because I was thinking of using them uh, to cage the queen, create a brood break, and then we would be able to, of course, treat uh, all the mites that are in now their dispersal phase. Yeah. And we could release the queen after 14 days, get the cage out, and uh, remove any um, varroa mites that were in that frame. Yeah, I would just question um, if, you, if you don't get to those drones as they emerge whether or not other bees other worker bees will actually attend them and, and keep them alive or if you'll just have a pile of of dead bees inside of that frame inside right. of a inside of a colony that'd be the first thing i would i would think about and and want to test because that um, was one of my questions for you is how long do drones live without being fed by nurse bees or yeah, any we can, workers well we can get them to live quite a while in the lab and i and i forget um it's an epipotamus method um to keep uh, drones alive in the lab, but um, we can keep them alive for about 20 days in the lab without without too many issues, short of them drowning themselves in a honey feeder. Um, but just, uh, I've never had great experience um, kind of isolating drones like that in the hive, and I'd want to test that first. Um, I think actually what you're bringing up is something that I've been getting as I share this with bee clubs, which mm -hmm. is um, the observation that we made, that I made, um, explains so much of what didn't quite fit together for our beekeeping observations experiences. Like we've seen these really high spikes in alcohol wash in the fall mm -hmm. and the current explanations don't fully explain our observations. Um, a lot of us have seen mites on drones or we know that they're on uh, the drone brood. And then there's a gap in knowledge that we had about what do they do after that? Who are they actually feeding on? Mm -hmm. As soon as we provide people this information, beekeepers are super quick. You know, I'm getting emails saying, are you are you looking for drone pheromones or drone um, uh, smells, cuticular mm -hmm. hydrocarbons sure, so you sure. can make a bait trap? Answer is yes. Yeah. We proposed the project several years ago. Yeah. Um, are you going to use this to predict mite infestations in the fall by sampling drones in the spring? Yes. We started this two years ago. Mm -hmm. We're doing it. Can I siphon, which is essentially what you're doing in this trap, mites mm -hmm. out of my colony by isolating one drones and removing it? And it's it's one of the great things that you know beekeepers like you are doing, which is you're getting this information and immediately doing some applied work with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if it's if it's going to be an effective way to remove varroa from a from the colony, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's absolutely something like that people should that could try, um, and then see how well does it work for my time invested in and energy in. Did I actually have an effective mite control? Did I learn something? about my bees and mites just by trying this. Just mm -hmm. because something maybe doesn't work in the end doesn't mean it wasn't really good for us as a beekeeper. Right. Uh, you know, I tell people to pick up newly emerged bees and look at them for mites. Well, why do I suggest that? Um, one, you can actually do that without killing 300 bees. So people that don't want to do an alcohol wash mm -hmm. uh, um, can get at least some sampling method if they're not going to do one at all. Uh, two, um, if you don't normally pick up bees, here's a bee that won't sting you. Right. And you're 
getting some dexterity learning how to pick up newly emerged bees. Mm -hmm. You're now working with your bees a little bit more intimately. You're now spending more time looking at your your worker bees. You're, and um, once you have a heavily infested colony, it just jumps out at you. Mm -hmm. Is it a really effective sampling strategy? No, absolutely not. It takes too long. You'll mm -hmm. never do it if you have a lot of colonies. Right. But if you yeah. want to learn a lot, is it a great way to, again, work more intimately with your bees? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of my my response to, to bringing up this idea that you have, which is we're getting this from beekeepers where they're seeing our research and immediately jumping to the next step. The energy is awesome. A lot of the ideas are really good. I'm going to be psyched to see how does this play out as beekeepers do what they do really well, which is they, they're really good at running experiments. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to get a lot of um, citizen science feedback uh, from that method going after the drones. People don't feel that bad about the drones. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's mad about the, the nurse bees being harmed, but uh, the the drone control and drone, even as a test subject, as a group, uh, to look at those drones and see if they're really loaded with mites. We're going to see a lot of feedback on that. I know people are going to share about it. I'm going to video them. Yeah and see what we find uh, because it saves me. I feel bad about caging my queen if I don't have to. If this is actually a method that could be an alternative to caging the queen and creating my brood break in the period when they're doing a lot of uh, drone production. Mm -hmm. And uh, so are you planning to go up to Mike Palmer's this year and do more of your work there or are you done with him? Not, not, I'll never be done with Mike. He's a, he's a great guy. And so is Troy. Okay. Um, but we're not doing the project up there this year. So this project, we didn't have funding for this project. And I keep saying we, we, we. Yeah. So um, I had this great observation um, in Maryland. I ran uh, multiple field trials. And by the 2021, I knew I wanted to do this next experiment. And my advisor was supportive, um, but we didn't have funding for it. Um, as great as Pam Costco was, I didn't have just, you know, all that extra funding to just travel. So I called my parents. And asked him if they would help oh, me yeah. run an experiment once a month. And they said yes. Um, and so for the last two years, this project's been possible because they've literally gotten up at 3, 3.30 in the morning on a, on a Thursday night or, or a, a Friday, driven up to Vermont, sampled bees with me for three days, and then mm -hmm. gone back to work. Now we're approaching the third year. We wanted to do it again. But, you know, unfortunately, they're actually taking care of both of my grandparents now. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of look at do we want to do a third year project? Um, and we look at how much work they're doing, how many projects I have. And we're like, you know what, let's just not do this. Um, the nice thing is we have, um, and this is the really great thing about this project, just like the nano project. There's been so many supportive clubs or beekeepers um, where now there's a commercial beekeeper here in Maryland who just opened his gates and said, okay, here's four yards, come pick the colonies that you want to work with this season, do anything with them. So we're, I'm going to do a different project this um, summer um, as a third year, but I won't be up in Vermont. Yeah. And that's great about your parents. Are they beekeepers themselves in, or did you have to train them on the job? What happened? There was definitely some on-the-job training. Um, but no, my, my parents are awesome. Um, and they were also, I knew they were actually the people I wanted to work with for, for reasons that might not be um, obvious at first. Um, so they're two of the hardest working people I know, and they've, you know, my mom grew up on a dairy farm. My dad's from Brazil and they've always kind of had to, to have grit and, and work through different hardships. So I knew no matter what the weather was or how many stings we were getting, we would just finish the sampling. And 
Um, and sometimes it was pretty miserable up there, especially early in the season where, you know, it'd be a nice day in May. And then all of a sudden we're getting, you know, galls and, and rain. And my mom, I have a picture of her. She's holding down this pop-up tent. My dad's still sampling so we can get, uh, you know, the replicates in. Yeah. Um, so that was the first reason why I had uh, chosen them. The other one was they had no skin in the game. They didn't know whether disproving the alcohol wash or proving it was a good thing or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And and so um, in terms of having two people collect unbiasedly, they were perfect. Um, and I had uh, hooked my parents up with their first beehive um, uh, the year before. And okay. then I brought them up a few beehives in the spring of 2020. So they had two years of, you know, hobbyist backyard beekeeping. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of on the job training. Um, and then uh, by the end of the summer, they were in more hives, doing more things with those hives than uh um, you know, most hobbyists beekeepers will get in their lifetime. And the cool thing was seeing my parents just become scientists. And this is really, you know, I was never really into citizen science and now I'm all for it. Um, because we're up there, it's August, we're at one of Mike Palmer's yards and I pulled out a pair of tweezers. This wasn't even part of the project. And I said, oh, this is really cool. If you pull open the brood, you can find mites. And my dad wanted to know the proportion of mites in worker brood versus drone brood. And he, and it's like, I lost my parents for 20 minutes, you know, yeah. in the project, they just became scientists right in front of me. And I think, you know, if you're an educator, this is what you want. Irrelevant of whether someone's in academia or going to write a formal paper or anything is, can you turn anyone into a scientist? Can someone learn about the natural world? And I got to see my parents do it right in front of me. Mm -hmm. um, and that was awesome. Awesome. And then, you know, we would essentially that first night, um, I don't drink anymore, but we would, uh, you know, just sample, sample. And we'd go out in Burlington and drink and talk about the project. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my dad came up with what sounded like a quirky idea at the time, which is, you know, we're taking all this time to sample the drones. He goes, can't we just get a popsicle tray and fill it with alcohol and throw drones into it and then look at the bottom of it? And I was like, that's not a half bad idea. And uh, through UMD, we have a SARE grant now, and that's actually part of the SARE grant where we have these vials. And just to do, um, uh, uh, my previous advisor, Dave, said we should really do sequential uh, sampling. And so, you know, it was really cool seeing my dad arrive at that idea, but not know the terms for it. Mm -hmm. And then for Dave to arrive at that idea, know the terms and science behind it but you can have these two very distinct people enter science in a really similar way. And to me, that was awesome. And so now this year we have several citizen science projects um, for this project occurring. So we have a group in Virginia, James Wilson and I are organizing with a bunch of uh, beekeepers in Virginia who have offered to uh, from April through August to do alcohol washes on their colonies and to do our drone sampling method, which is essentially picking up 40 drones and throwing them to alcohol mm -hmm. and, and sending the data to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to see, can people in Virginia predict which of their colonies would be infested come August? Mm -hmm. And there's a beekeeper who is going for their master beekeeping test in Colorado, and she organized 21 beekeepers to do the same project in Colorado. And now we have um, what looks like a group in Ontario that might be doing something similar. And one of the things I'm really psyched about, however the data comes back, is we're engaging beekeepers um, with science. And they're, they're going to be turning out data that's going to be helpful to us, you know, one way or another. And so I really now, 
Now that sounds great that she's going to use that as her master beekeeper project. Yeah. It sounds like her research project. And uh, do you have all the citizen science participants for that program that you want? Because I know somebody watching this is going to say, I want to be part of your citizen science program. Are you looking for other participants or do you have what you need? No, I, I want more participants. There's one thing I'm worried about. I'm, I'm worried it would, it would get too big too quick. Mm -hmm. And at the peak of the season, have too many emails come in that I can't get back to um, in an appropriate amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only thing I'm worried about. So otherwise, no, I'd love to have, you know, someone in Vermont, New York, and have multiple bee clubs say, we want to do this. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the online forms that we have, the, the material and methods and everything, um, everything that was made for Virginia um, can easily just be adapted for any of those groups. It's just if I start to get 50 emails a day with, right. um, you know, questions that can sync me and we don't have funding for this. So right. that that's probably the only the only hiccup. But why would we want more people um, engaged in this right away? Well, we don't have economic thresholds for mite infestations on adult drones. Mm -hmm. That would be a, a huge advance for beekeepers. So what do I mean by an economic threshold? Well, um, most of your viewers probably know that if you have three mites per 100 bees in an alcohol wash, you should, current uh, best management practices are to, to treat the colony. And um, I think it's Jack Cameron in Florida has, he has this, I think pretty sure it's him. He has this beautiful um, uh, like uh, flow chart of infestation levels depending on the time of the season and to me it's it's one of the the best management uh, management techniques was he says even if you see some uh you know ones and twos earlier in the season you should probably probably treat so i just kind of want to um throw something out to that because I, th I thought that was really great but um no it'd be amazing if you know between the northeast or upper midwest virginia or any other state we start to see how many mites do you need to detect on drones early in the season to know it's infested later in the season, to have a, a high degree of accuracy that's going to be infested later in the season. So, yeah, in that case, the more the merrier. Uh, the only thing I'm worried about, yeah, go ahead. And I believe your sample rate was 40 drones. How did you arrive at that number? Yeah, so um, we arrived there because 75 was just too much and too tedious. Mm -hmm. The average number of drones that we would find per colony was around 40. Okay. Uh, and, and so that then became a pretty good number to, to go with. And then I was running some preliminary stats and we got some degrees of significant, and we had significance at 40 drones, um, but it's actually up to 40 drones. Um, so for example, at Troy Halls, he's, uh, even though he's south of Michael Palmer, his season starts later than Michael's. Um, and so when we would do our first sampling there, we'd get into tons of callings where we'd only find like 10 drones on the two frames that we're sampling from. Mm -hmm. And um, you're always going to have um, your colony producing worker bees, but drone, drone production is inconsistent. Mm -hmm. um, so it's up, to, it's up to 40 drones. And, and we arrived there from some, you know, crude estimates, essentially. Okay. Now, your focus is on the mites. Do you know a lot about drones? No, I don't. I am I am not the world's expert on drones. If you are, take it away. No, I have drone questions. That's why I was I was counting. Oh, on. yeah. No, I'll I'll be honest about what I don't know. Um, the uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, well, we can go back to the mites. How long does a mite live without a host? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. I know some of it depends upon the humidity, so um, they desiccate pretty quickly. 
Okay. And so if you take it off a host in a very dry environment, it'll desiccate. Um, in a human environment, it can live longer. In the lab, um, we'll do nutri we've done nutritional studies with, with mites, and we've uh, given them different stressors. If we isolate them from hosts for two hours, even if we put them back on hosts, we lose approximately half of those mites where they won't end up feeding and they'll die. After four hours, it's almost 100% of the, the mites will die if they've been removed from a host for four hours. Um, my assumption is that they're nutritionally stressed and they can't, they can't uh, revive. Um, actually can't feed before before they pass away. But um, I don't know what's the longest someone's kept a mite yeah. off of post in its lake. That's interesting. Yeah, because the reason I was hoping you knew more about, because here's something that happens uh, late in the year for me. And uh, if I get a late uh, requeening in one of my colonies and that queen yes. does her virgin flight, I've been seeing these drone rushes where when she returns uh, after being mated, I'll get hundreds of drones on the landing board of that colony and they're not there long. They're there for a couple of hours and then they disperse. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've observed that or if, because now I'm thinking they could be mite loaded. I don't know what these drones are doing or where they're from or what's going on and why they do this behavior. Uh, it seems like they follow the queen uh, back from a drone congregation area. So, yeah, I'm smiling because, um, you know, at Mike's every four days during the season, we, we catch Queens. He's got these little four frame colonies that we catch Queens out of, and we'll just have tons of drones in them. And we always have this snarky comment that we make up there. And Mike will be like, kind of amazing how many drones we have for a colony with no drone comb. Right. And and our only thing was they, they must be following the queen back. And I don't think there's a study on it. It'd be an awesome thing for an undergrad or a new uh, graduate student to do as a project. Um, whether or not those drones are going to be mite loaded. Because um, they'll be older drones. They would. Yeah, they're going to be older drones. My research shows that those the adult drones that mites like the least. So they're the least likely to have a mite on them. Mm -hmm. They would also have to then theoretically be the drone that is really old and happens to have a mite on it when it leaves and um, enters a DCA and then follows a queen back. So it sounds like it'd be a, a pretty inefficient route for emigration from one colony right. to another. Yeah. Ellis did show that uh, they collected mites from drones in DCAs. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, here's a, you know, from the perspective of the Varroa destructor mite, attaching yourself to a drone that is of prime age and likely to fly out to a congregation area, your chances of losing your life with that drone once he mates is high. Um, it might be, but um, I'm working on a perspective paper that you're, you're kind of going into. I think the biggest risk for mites that have already reproduced is not getting into another colony. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like, you know, all your eggs in one basket or something. But um, if I reproduce, if I'm, a, if I'm a mite and I make daughters, and I'm inside of a colony, great, good for me. I'm successful. I have daughters. If they make daughters, great. I have granddaughters. I'm a success. But come winter, if my host colony dies, it doesn't matter how many daughters I made. We all lose. Right. Right. And so if you took something like, um, oh, what's it called? Um, a gambler's ruin. And you applied it to mite survivorship. They have to disperse into another colony. Otherwise, they eventually go extinct. Mm -hmm. So engaging in risky behavior might be less risky than staying in 
your host colony before mm-hmm. it dies. And um, I, I have this hypothesis that mites are actually more successful if they kill the colony during warm weather you have this opportunity to emigrate into sure. a bunch of healthy colonies because robbing ensues right away and yep yeah and um and that's all i mean there's a couple of different thoughts there but i don't want to go off into the weeds or a tangent so okay now does that mean now you mentioned burlington did you go to university of vermont no i wish i love burlington okay. uh um no i was i was um uh so mike's in st albans burlington is right. the nearest city and, um, you know, my parents are helping me for, for three days, but we do need to unwind. So we would go down there and just, you know, look for new restaurants, some stuff to do. And it's a great place to hang out, especially in the summer. You know, you get those really late nights. You can get a creamy up there. They're real soft serve. Yeah, the creamies. Until... See, that's a, that's a Vermont term right there, the creamies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, you haven't lived until it's 1030 at night. You can still see, you know, some uh, twilight and you have a creamy in your hand. Yeah, my family's from Vermont, so. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, but we're from the Northeast Kingdom. Okay. So that's Craftsbury, that area. Mm-hmm. But I have relatives down in Morrisville, and everyone used to work in Stowe, and everybody worked Smuggler's Notch and everything. So, And that's where Mike Palmer sells his honey at the um, apple, the cider mill, which is in Stowe. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Yeah. Well, see, I don't know. I don't know who his customers are. So for you one one new thing. Well, the cider mill, cider mill donuts. Everybody goes there. I thought, but uh, so it also in your background, you were a commercial bee beekeeper. Yeah. Um, so I originally had a farm in New Hampshire, and my wife at the time and I were running it. When she left, um, everything we did together was attached to um, to her, and. You know, I tried milking and continuing with the cows and I just realized I can't do any of this. So I called the CSA customer, got rid of the chickens, got rid of the cows. And uh, the bees were the only thing that we never did together. And um, so I grew my colonies out from about three to 400 and, and started doing this little migratory operation between the coast of North Carolina and upstate New York, where I would produce queens and nukes in North Carolina in the spring down there sell them all and then take about a hundred colonies and split them out again um up in up in new york and then return with anywhere from three to four hundred um back down in north carolina and, and do it every year and i did this while simultaneously working for mike so more more sideliner and scale but it was my full-time income uh for quite a few years and then um yeah i got to a point where i could stop working for mike and just scale up you know lisa warehouse make some hires um but I knew once I did that, I would never go back to school. And I was getting my spring inspection um, um, in North Carolina. And and I asked Don Hopkins, the state inspector. Um, I don't know if he's still the state inspector there. Um, but I asked him, you know, hey, you know, what do you think about going back to school? You know, I'd have to give this up. And he saw me grow from just a few colonies to, to having hundreds and selling hundreds in the state and then going up and selling more. Um, and he goes, you can always do this again, but you'll never go back to school. And I took the advice. I took, kind of took that as advice and, um, uh, yeah, that was it. Hmm. And, but now you don't, now you have the few in your backyard that you used during COVID. Uh, yeah, lots have changed since then. So, um, I had been pretty broke at one point after, after my divorce, um, you know, it was during the great recession. We had a property that was underwater. Um, I was washing dishes in the evening um, as my 
uh, income supplementing the farm income. And I was building a house. So, I mean, I was broke. And um, this is why that background's pertinent. When, and then, you know, I lived out of my truck for a couple of years doing the bees until I could actually get up to profitability and sell enough colonies every year that, um, you know, I could actually have a profit. And uh, when I was deciding to go back to school, my, my business was, was really profitable. And I was making, you know, about $80,000 a year from that many colonies plus working for Mike. It was great. Um, but I wasn't going to go back and be a broke grad student in the DC area where rent's really expensive. So mm-hmm. I kept approximately a hundred colonies and um, I would sell Queens and nukes every year of my PhD. Um, and multiple years I made more doing that than I did from my PhD stipend. Um, and then it wasn't until the last year of my PhD where I actually had to write my thesis that I was like, I can't juggle these experiments and then seasonally producing queens and nukes down here. So I ended up uh, just stopping it, um, which was fine. Um, and uh, I kept one customer because um, he's super awesome. He's an older guy that just uh, buys queens from me so he can make nukes and sell them. And, um, I, and it, and it kind of works because I produce colonies for my own research. Um, but, uh, but that was kind of the end of me really keeping bees and doing a bit of it. And then right now I actually live out of a van, so I don't even have the backyard to, to keep the bees in. I was going to ask that you said you lived out of your truck. What kind of truck was it? Was it one of those like tiny house trucks? What was, what was, no, I'm looking down because this was, this was not a good time in my life. I mean, I was, I was broke and, uh, it was, uh, it was a, uh, a Silverado 1500. And I essentially slept in the front seat. I mean, this was uh, this was a pretty low part of part of my life, to be honest. And um, going back to grad school, the reason why I was so adamant that I was going to keep uh, the hundred hives and, and not live off the graduate student um, stipend was, um, you know, there was a couple of years where I was deciding between, you know, needing gas and and sugar for my bees or or just going in a grocery store and getting as much food as I wanted to eat, and um, Oh, Jesus. I think the first time Mike saw me, I was down to like 160 something pounds. And um, I'm like 210 right now. And um, and uh, I had suspenders on. He has this great picture of me and he hated it because every time I'd bend over for a beehive, he'd see my ass. And uh, <laughs> and um, but uh, I was just like, I'm, I'm not going to I'm going to if I'm going to be a grad student, I'm going to walk into a grocery store and I'm just going to grab what I want to eat. And I'm not even going to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now the, the, those truck years, as I kind of call them, were actually really formative for, for who I am now and some of the decision-making I made since. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the van came out because, um, I had this two-year lease on this property in college park and, um, um, uh, my landlord wanted to sell it, but I had this two-year lease. So he, he paid me almost $5,000 to move out and I was doing my thesis and I was like, okay, that's a, that's a good deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I moved back in with family, finished my thesis, um, but and my postdoc was going to be back here. By the time I moved back, rent had gone up so much mm-hmm. that about half of my new income would go to rent. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. And I was dating a travel nurse at the time. And um, if I got a lease in the D.C. area, she would have just broken up with me right away. So my kind of uh, compromise to that was, well, I can convert a van and then save money on rent and and um you know as soon as i can work remotely we can go travel together and um that didn't fully work out we ended up breaking up but um 
No, it's been, it's actually been great. So I'm a year to date living in the van. I put over $40,000 in my retirement fund just from saving that money on rent mm -hmm. and um, I'm eating great, traveling a lot. And now I'm looking to buy a house in Baltimore. So it's, it's kind of like this, you know, little weird thing that I didn't expect you, to happen. But You've got a lot of skills. So I think you mentioned that you also built a house and uh, <clears throat> is that right? So you built it yourself, right? And yeah. I mean, when I built that one, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but yeah, I, I um, finished up college um, at a school that was 20 minutes from my grandfather's and I, I lived with him and um, my grandfather is this old Yankee with, you know, tons of ingenuity and did everything himself. himself. And I wanted to kind of learn everything. So, you know, I would cut trees down and bring them. He had this band sawmill. I would bring them over to a sawmill with a horse and then mill them up. And uh, that's how I started like milling the wood for the first house I built. And I, and when I say I knew nothing, when I started building, you know, I knew nothing. And my grandfather would, you know, show me a step and I would do it. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it worked out, but then I ended up uh, working as a carpenter for other contractors. And, um, you know, one year I had a flood and uh, lost most of my bees, my beekeeping business, my standing yard just flooded. I called a contract and I did roofing all, all uh, winter in North Carolina. And the moment I could graft queens, I quit, you know, and so wow. kind of always have, have something I could juggle, but hopefully not getting back into any of that. Now, how closely did you look over Mike Palmer's house while you were up there? Because, you that know, that, that they built, Mike Palmer was part of the Back to Earth movement yeah, yeah. Uh, from UVM. Those guys, they all ran up there. I remember when I was little and seeing the communes and stuff up where Mike lives. But uh, he, I think they took apart barns and stuff and they all shared the lumber and that's how he built his house i i didn't hear that story about his house but um his house is gorgeous inside it and has so a I'm lot of you can see that the mainframe the timbers and stuff were from an old barn or something yeah. they still have tenon joints in them and things like that yeah no i don't i don't really remember that i've only been to his house like physically at it maybe four times mm -hmm. and um each time we essentially hung out in the uh on the porch and you know had beer and um, actually funny story about that is he's got this dog, Wilson, and, um, the dog just is skittish of me. And for years while working for him, I would try to get the dog to, uh, let me pet it. And he wouldn't, Wilson would just bark at me and be skittish and stay away. And, uh, one of the times that we hung out actually physically at his house, we all just used to take bee boxes and set out by the workshop and drink beer there. Um, Sam Comfort was, had come up. And Sam sits down and I sit down and Wilson just comes right over and puts his head right on Sam's lap. Never saw Sam before in his life and let Sam just pet him there. And I'm just like, I've never been so jealous in my life before. And uh, yeah. So he named his dog after a volleyball from a movie <laughs> Castaway? What? Yeah. yeah. That's a, so you still, that bothers you that that dog rejected you. Oh, wow. You didn't have to put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting you've been through a lot and i i think it's really interesting that you focus so much on your education even with all the challenges that you had uh you know holding the course and really going on and getting your phd i think that's incredible really oh thank you um yeah yeah it's weird like the things that'll stick with you um when i was in my undergrad i i really didn't know why i was going to college other than you know, my parents hadn't gone to college. They just always told my brother and I, you're going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we're 
in high school and finally had to apply for colleges were like, okay, well, we'll apply. But when I was actually in my undergrad, I didn't know why I was there. Hmm. And it wasn't until at the end of my undergrad, my senior year, I'm like, I think I'm just here to make my parents feel good about themselves. And that was unfortunately, I say really unfortunately, my takeaway about my undergrad. Hmm. But I had this biology professor um, when I asked him a question as we were working in school, he just said, when you're in grad school. And then he pers- I didn't hear anything he said after that. I just heard the words when you're in grad school. And it was this professor, Nick Bear. And I'm so thankful that he actually said it that way, because the moment he said that and I heard it, I knew I was going to go to grad school. I just had no idea what that meant or how to get there. Hmm. Uh, But it was it was, you know, I've told Nick this, you know, that was, you know, an extremely important moment in my life. And and when Don Hopkins had made that comment, you can always make these bees again. You know, those two things kind of kind of click together. And um, and then the other fact is I just love learning. Right. Like. Um, I always have this attitude that, um, you know, if you can double your experience or skill level um, at whatever interval, then in a year, no one recognizes you. So, you know, the first time I started working for a carpenter, it's just because he needed an extra set of hands. And um, he asked me what the measurement was. And I remember saying 198 and a half, a big line and a little line. And he's (laughs) like, yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's like 11 sixteenths. And I'm like, yeah, that. (laughs) <laughs> um, but look a couple years later and you know we're digging out the foundation for for the first house i built and mm-hmm. that that was really cool by the end of that house i'm like okay now i can build now i can really build the next one now i know what to do and it mm-hmm. turns out you never know what to do you just it's iterative right but if you just keep improving and um i think anyone here at the usda can say the same thing about you know my skills in the laboratory i just followed michelle hamilton and eugene Riabov around for the longest time and it took me the longest time to pick up techniques, which is embarrassing. Hmm. Um, but now I'm proficient in the lab and I run my own experiments. And uh, now we're just kind of touching base if I need help with something or I'm helping other people. And and uh, again, I can't recognize who that person used to be. But as long as you're actually willing to learn and kind of be humble in between. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's it, because uh, these are lifelong investments, new skills that you pick up. They're with you forever. And they don't cost anything for maintenance. So mm-hmm. knowledge, skills, everything you can get. That's that's been my philosophy my whole life. I grab every every skill and ability that I have an opportunity to learn about. And uh, maybe it's wasted. I don't know. But uh, when something comes along, you realize you know how to do that. I mean, uh, you've covered some ground. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm old and stuff, but but um, I'll, this is this really interesting. Go ahead. No, I'll just I'll just add to that. You know, I thought of, you know, for while I was in my PhD, I'm like, you know, I I took a gap decade, and that's that puts me as a much older student than everyone else when I was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, I was I felt really out of place at UMD, and then I was like, did I waste that much time? Right, and probably the only time I actually wasted was was periods in my life where I held resentment or anger. Like that's really the only time you waste. Mm-hmm. I've, I've realized that, you know, I washed dishes for three years in the evening to, you know, keep the farm going. Mm-hmm. But those skills that I learned during there helped me in my, my PhD. It's extremely boring washing dishes all night. Well, it's extremely boring doing a lot of our experiments. And I got so used to doing the repetition in those dishes 
that when I had to do these very iterative things for my experiments, like handpicking up thousands of bees, mm-hmm. all I would do is mentally reference what I've already done in the past and be like, oh, this isn't that bad. Um, or in the case of uh, I needed to make these arenas um, out of plexiglass, and I just watched a couple of YouTube videos, but all I had to do was hit, take out my table saw, turn a blade backwards, and I... I cut plexiglass and then glued it together. And then we had these custom arenas that we've used for multiple experiments. One of them is published already. And, um, you know, if I wasn't a carpenter, I never would have come up with those arenas. Yep. And so I look at all of that stuff and been like, wow, that really helped me um, in grad school. It helped me be a researcher. You just wouldn't know it at the time. So mm-hmm. when it came time to get rid of your beekeeping equipment, when you were no longer going to do the sideliner uh, aspect, uh, how hard was it to get rid of your stuff? That's it. In other words, were well, there look, people easy? Was it easy to sell off? Were people skeptical about used equipment? How did that go? No, I didn't have that problem. So the first season, oh geez, we probably closed, we probably sold close to eight hundred hives that first season, just in terms of splits and getting rid of stuff. Hmm. But I did a poor judgment, which is I kept too much equipment. So I still have. Um, you know, my large extractor, I still have the um, uncapper and, and uh, holding tanks. And that's just sitting in storage. I shouldn't have that. You know, mm-hmm. right. And um, I kept this uh, 16 foot trailer I had for, for way too long and, and way too many boxes. And so in 2020, I needed some cash. And then I really started letting stuff go. People were pretty fine with the used boxes. I did a steep discount, but I flame weed everything that I used every season too. Um, one is I never want to be selling nukes to hobbyists that have some sort of patent brew disease in them. So I, I just de facto flame weed everything that way, just like some beekeepers prophylactically treat or prophylactically manage your brew disease. Mm-hmm. I just prophylactically flame weed. So I wasn't worried about anyone getting you it. You want to explain that process to some people that might be listening and not know what that is? Yeah, sorry. So you can get a flame weeder, which is this backpack, um, that'll hold a propane tank. And it'll have a little wand on it and um, it'll just keep a constant flame once you light it. And if you hit a button, it'll send out, send in more gas and oxygen and you get this massive flame. Um, The reason it's called a weeder is um, if you uh, till up some soil and prep it for a garden bed, you can water it and let weeds germinate. Well, if you touch it with a flame, you'll kill all of those weeds and then you can directly plant into it. Um, afterwards, or people just use this to like clean up the grass around their sidewalks if they don't want to use an herbicide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a really great way to sterilize your beekeeping equipment, um, your woodenware, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to be super careful not to cause a fire. So again, dry grass leaves, it's so hot, you will start a fire. You got to do it on gravel or tar. And mm-hmm. then um, you really got to be careful to keep it away from, from your face or eyes. I know that sounds stupid, but sometimes people do really stupid yep. things. Yep. Nope. And, it can be a clear, and it can be a clear flame if you have it running too fast. So, Okay. Now, are you hitting the boxes until they start to turn color slightly? Or how do you like, know when you hit it enough? Like if you're bruleeing a creme brulee, you'll, you'll okay. just see them get a little toasted and move along. A uh, couple of things for safety. You don't want to... Uh, uh, keep the flame stationary at all and get that wood hot. Remember, embers can stay um, hot enough to combust for days. So you don't want to do this uh, touching up your boxes and then move them inside to storage. That's that's right. a recipe for disaster. It's a really low risk, but it's there. So it's just like someone 
you know, putting a cigarette butt in your barn. It's just a really bad idea. Uh, That's good advice. So is there, in closing, I want to thank you for your time uh, talking with us. We've talked for over an hour. Um, is there anything else you want to share with people? Some closing remarks, uh, something you'd like to explain about yourself or the work that you're doing? Um, well, no, I think, I think what I should do, Fred, is really thank you for having on here. You know, you're catching me at the end of my day. I'm sorry if I'm coming off as tired, but no, this, no, is, no. this has really been great. And what we really want is I want people to, to get this new information and then um, to help them understand their bees better. But really three, beekeepers are really great at experimenting. Um, and we want them to be able to say, okay, what can I take away from this and, and improve my management practices? We're gonna get some people that make false claims on the internet or state things too quickly. Okay, that happens all the time, that's a shame. We're gonna get a lot of people who are gonna try a new method like you're bringing up and then report it works or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then someone's gonna take an iterative process and say, wait, I can simplify it and do this. And the mm -hmm. cool thing is it's a, it's a community-based communi uh, conversation that we're gonna end up having. Mm -hmm. the, the next thing is um, in terms of for commercial beekeepers, um, when they see this, a lot of them instantly jump to, I should treat earlier. They understand when they see that that uh, schematic of 60% of your hive can be in, can essentially be bit in as little as nine days. They just realize I can't wait until late fall after I move my bees. I gotta I gotta pull these honey supers and treat. Um, so one of the things I'm really hopeful for is we will get some changes in management and we'll start to hear uh, better results. That's what we're really really hoping for um, because we're getting reports of really high colony losses from commercial beekeepers right now. And these men and women are busting their butts. It's really expensive to keep a colony alive now commercially. And when they take heavy losses, it's really hard for them to recover. And um, they're just working way too hard for, for um, what seems like this uphill battle that they're dealing with year to year with Varroa. So. Mm -hmm. All great, uh, great information, great advice. And I thank you for uh, your generosity with your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot and uh, I appreciate the, the path that you've taken to get where you are. All great stuff. So I think we'll probably touch base down the road uh, once you've got some solutions to the things that you're working on. Okay. Good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fred. Well, that wraps up another interview, and I hope that you've learned something new regarding the dispersal habits of the Varroa destructor mite. We owe a debt of gratitude to people like Dr. Lamas who pursue knowledge by way of experimentation and direct observation so that we can all improve our honeybee management practices and better deal with challenges like the Varroa. I'm Frederick Dunn, and I thank you for joining me. I wish you all the best with your bees.